Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing Show. This week we are looking at the February FinTech Fair. Bit of a mouthful, but a lot to digest. We're gonna look at the buy now, pay later space. The performance of both Afterpay and Zip, not only in terms of their results, P&L, but also where the growth trajectory sits, but more importantly, where the social responsibility sits in the buy now, pay later space. If you're someone who wants to be part of that wave of a very new sector that Australia is very proud to lead globally, you're gonna take a heap out of this show. Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing Show with me, your host, Andrew Baxter, and as always, my offsider, Mr. Mitchell Orenshaw. Offsider, and today, thanks for having me on the show, Mr. B, and I'm very proud of the title of this podcast. I've just come up with it, as we know, two minutes ago, the February FinTech Fail, triple alliteration there. It is a triple, and I'm glad I've not got to say it because it'd be <laughs> way too hard for a simple man like myself. But yes, indeed, the, uh, the FinTech Fail. Bit of hyperbole in that. I wonder if that is hyperbole or whether it's fact. Well, we'll explore that as we go on through. And of course, what we're talking about is the movement that we've seen uh, in the buy now, pay later sector. You know, no question about it, 2020 uh, and to a large extent 2019 for that matter, were the years of Afterpay and Zip and so on. We've seen tremendous runs out of those stocks. Let's face it, Afterpay, $8.50 up to just shy of $160 in the year and a bit. It's, it's just an extraordinary run. But has the music stopped? Well, I guess that's the question that we'll certainly discover towards the end of the broadcast. But before that, let's cover off on, on some contextual information. 2020 or even 2019, why were they such strong years for companies like Afterpay and now more recently Zip? Yeah. But these companies are at the vanguard of buy now, pay later. And if you're a dinosaur like me, that's where instead of putting on a credit card, um, you effectively can split your transaction over four equal payments over the subsequent weeks or fortnights. Um, the market that these guys have gone after, traditionally a younger market, um, younger age group demographic, don't particularly want credit cards. They don't like the idea of credit cards. They certainly don't like the idea of the 17 or 18 percent interest that credit cards tend to carry. And the notion of being able to have something that is on your phone, is portable, is a disruptive technology, ticks many, many boxes, and it's been in the right place at the right time as reflected by the share prices. It's crazy because funnily enough, I was doing some online shopping myself yesterday, and thankfully I don't have to use Afterpay, I'm very fortunate, but even before you even select what kind of checkout method it is, whether it be Apple Pay or credit card, there's an option after pay for equal payments of X. Yep. It's it's so in your face, you can't help but go, oh, maybe, maybe I split it up. Mm, who knows, right? It's prolific and, and, and it's a good thing and it's a bad thing. I think in a way, um, you know, if we look at, for example, through you know, the pandemic economy, more and more people shopping online and having that means to do so in a safer, encrypted way, very, very popular. So as I say, perfect timing, a perfect storm for these companies. Uh, but more recently, uh, that perfect storm has maybe turned into more troubled waters and we've seen that obviously Obviously, um, yeah, if we look at Afterpay's share price, which is, as we record today, um, is down around 25% over the last month or so from its highs of 160 and about $120 a share. So that's a meteoric implosion. Uh, yeah, 25% is a big drop in share price. And, and then there are reasons specifically behind that. And you wonder whether this creates a buying opportunity or whether it's time to rotate either into another stock in that sector, or indeed whether it's time to move sector altogether and look at some different spaces. It's funny you say that because Zip was down exactly the same amount, about 25%. And there's always been that, that overarching fear of valuation when it comes to these shares because they really haven't got any earnings to value their share price on, yet we've seen them shoot up to, to, to really crazy heights. Can we chat about, first off, 
AB after pace earnings that were just announced on the 25th of Feb. But all, all, all of the numbers were bigger than the last six months, which is what you which want to great. see if they're the right numbers. Unfortunately, so too with the red colored ones, which is not so good. <laughs> so after pay for the six months bank, I think it's about a $79 million loss yep. uh, for the six months. So here's a business that's market capitalization is bigger than Qantas and bigger than a number of ASX. I think it's also, it might even be bigger than West Farmers now it's in big. terms of its market capitalization, um, and yet is not making a profit. And, and this is a real head spin for a lot of value investors uh, that are going, how can it keep going up? What's propelling it? And what we're effectively doing with a stock like this, or, or Tesla for that matter, is buying a slice of what the future could be. Um, yeah, and yes, the company isn't uh, generating a profit per se right now, um, but the model is projected to at some point in time. Well, these are high growth stocks. We saw after pay report earnings sales were up 106%, which yeah. is massive growth, yet they're recording a $79 million loss. So there's kind of the yin and the yang in there. As an investor or even as a trader, how do you digest such information? Well, there's a lot of money being spent in there on growing the business, uh, acquisitions and, and, and buying market share to all intents and purposes. But what I thought was really interesting, I mean, several times when I've been interviewed, I've talked about Afterpay having first mover advantages, kind of like Uber is the wide share company one knows about, and then you've got maybe Holler or Lyft or some of the second and third ones um, on the side. Um, in this case, everyone talks about Afterpay, but I want to talk a little bit about Zip as well, because I think we may be, and I'm certainly looking at this quite closely personally from my own trading strategy at the moment, seeing a bit of a changing of the guard. Now, Zip, uh, you know, the poor second cousin to Afterpay, it's not 120 bucks a share, it's, uh, it's $10 a share, so infinitely more affordable, um, managed to outperform Afterpay by posting 139, I think, million dollar loss yep. uh, for the six months. So, which is a substantial loss uh, on, on any business, again, when it's trading at such lofty um, you know, expectations and price levels. But some of the things that I'm seeing within Zip in particular, I really like the look of. Um, if we look at its expansion into the US, which for everybody is the land of opportunity, the land of plenty, uh, you know, conquering that, just like the music industry, if you can conquer it over there, you kind of made it. The goal. The goal is to get into that market, to, you know, by an order, you know, it's just so much bigger than, you know, the country's 20, 25 times bigger than Australia in terms sure. of population and so on. Um, Zip made an acquisition quad pay uh, last year, and, and this is really quite interesting because not only has it made that acquisition to buy market share there, but what's it, what it's been able to do, which is very, very smart, is, is increase the uh, turnover or the transactional activity within QuadPay, but it's also been able to increase the margin it's making on those transactions too. So if we go back to, we talked to stretch goals fairly recently, where you can have vertical or horizontal stretches. Zip is stretching very much horizontally and vertically, which is a really good thing to see. And I think it will reap significant dividend from that over time through that strategy. In fact, my suspicions would be that out of the two, Zip and Afterpay, I suspect we'll see Zip end up getting a dual listing on the NASDAQ over in the US. Terrific capital raising uh, opportunity for that company, raising its profile to the very, very next level. Um, and, and I think you know, long term, there may be more catch up value in that business on the basis of its US story. Could be terribly wrong, but they're the things I'm seeing in markets right now. And that horizontal and vertical stretch that we're seeing through that pay acquisition is working out extremely well for Zip right now. It has. It, it certainly had a run up just like Afterpay, much the same. But my question to you, AB, is how the hell does a company like Zip afford to do all these things and acquire other companies? If it's posting $140 million losses, 
how do you then go and afford to go and buy something? They've, they've, gone to, they've, gone to, they've gone to market and they've raised further capital. They've got a couple of million in their war chest. They've got plenty of working capital in what sure. they're doing. And I guess it's a question of, you know, if, you, if, you, if you're going to be the first person that builds a car, do you wait for the road to be built or do you build the car and then let the road follow? So they're doing a lot of work in terms of getting the road down so that the car that they have can then drive on it, if that kind of makes sense. So there's a lot of expense when you're at the vanguard of a new industry. And look, stepping out of views of one stock versus the other, just putting the parochial Australian hat on for a minute, it's absolutely <laughs> bloody fantastic that we're seeing Australian homegrown companies literally dominate a sector globally as these companies truly are. And it's and it just it's hats off to the innovation that's gone on in our home. And it's something as Australians we don't recognise enough. We have that tall poppy syndrome. Oh look at this. It's a remarkable achievement what these companies have done to not only have first mover advantage, but to be scaling and starting to dominate in those markets. And we need to really recognise that success too. It's a great story. I know you and I are very pleased and we've had a lot of clients make also a lot of money from trading <laughs> yeah, these. Yeah. Um, where are the threats though? Because there have been such market domination, there's always going to be competitors you know, coming up. There's also a lot of economical threats as well, especially when it comes to consumer spending, which I know we'll touch on. Mm. What are the risks for these companies? Look, there, there are several layers of that. The one uh, which I, it seems like it's a threat on the surface, but I don't think will really materialize into anything. Um, a number of the banks here in Australia, they realize that Generation Y aren't interested in credit cards, they don't have the interest payments, who would? Um, and they've gravitated toward that. And, and there's talk that the banks are going to introduce a, you know, a zero uh, uh, interest credit card. I think NAB already has from memory. Now, great project, nice marketing exercise, but if you don't like credit cards and you want disruptive technology, the rates are not incidental, but almost incidental. And I, f I just don't see how that, that, that particular product is going to gain the traction in Generation Y. It's kind of like saying, look, Great news, we've got really good VHS videos that you can watch. They're the best quality, they're really cheap. You can have them and you go, yeah, but I, I stream with Netflix. So as <laughs> nice as that product is, it's not really my cup of tea. I'll leave that with my grandparents or mum and dad, they're more comfortable with that. So I think the banks have really missed that. So it is a threat, uh, but I don't think, and, and you've got to remember companies like Visa and MasterCard, plus the banks have got vast resources to be able to defend their fiefdoms that they've had really, it's, it's a triopoly, I suppose you've had Amex, uh, Visa, MasterCard, pretty much forever uh, in the diners, if anyone still uses that um, you know, as, as the fourth one. But it's really been that, that sort of infrastructure or, or players in that space forever, and now that's changed. So banks on one side. Uh, the second thing is, is a level of regulation. And, and these um, companies aren't regulated by APRA uh, or ASIC for that matter, insofar as because they're not providing finance, they don't quite sit under it, they're providing the technology sort of uh, solution. A loophole. You could call it a loophole, it operates outside of that, that's the bottom line. Sure. And, and now there's been a code of conduct uh, or, or, you know, or code of ethics has been put together for the buy now, pay later space, but it's self-regulating. And the big challenge with anything that's self-regulating, great if you're someone that's disciplined like you, but for someone that doesn't necessarily have the discipline, or better yet, let's put it in a slightly different way, it's very, very hard to be the gamekeeper and the poacher. Same person, same thing, because <laughs> your, your, your goals and objectives a dichotomous, they're opposite. And so, you know, it's it, it's a very tricky one having um, self-regulation in it. It does need to be spun out and it does need to be regulated properly as credit cards are, as consumer loans are, because there are starting to be some dark clouds 
coming over the hill uh, in regards to the lending practices within these businesses. And, and so self-regulation, yeah, there's nothing to see here, don't worry, is not really the answer. There needs to be a stronger leadership, I think, in the, in the regulatory space, not to put the handcuffs on these businesses, but to ensure their long-term success is there and entrenched uh, by them being able to operate on a really good firm footing uh, versus, you know, freestyle and running hard. I'm not suggesting they're doing that, but you know, you do need that regulatory structure in place to ensure the very, very long-term success of them. Now, is the onus there for a lot also, AB, we can talk about the consumer, because I believe one in five people have missed payments either using Afterpay or Zip, and then 70% of those people are also applying for other loans to service their Afterpay debt. Yeah. That's not a great story, it's a big threat. It, it, it's a real problem. And I think sometimes if you make credit too easy for people, um, look, don't use this, you can have it if you want, but don't use it, but you can have it if you want, but don't <laughs> use it, I'm gonna have it, aren't I? Um, yeah, it, it is too readily available. And, and look, within the sector, and we've only talked about the Zip, obviously there are other companies in that space too, each and every one of them have got their own business practices. Some are far more vigorous in terms of screening people for their serviceability, others are a little bit more laid back. And again, that's why I call into question you know, the ability to self-regulate in that regard. There needs to be a more robust um, definitive, this is the process in this industry. So for sure, you know, if you make something available for people, they're gonna gorge on it. And as you say, the stats are quite harrowing. One in five people that use the uh, you know, buy now, pay later services are missing payments, and then subsequently are refinancing with an interest-bearing loan to pay off their debt to these companies. Uh, and that is a real problem. We're also seeing people forego necessities. Now, I'm not sure what necessity is because some people consider you know, the, the internet, for example, as a necessity. Maybe having the latest iPhone or tablet, all those things aren't really necessities, but anyway. Um, but people are foregoing meals and things like that to be able to keep up with their debt. And that's a really difficult position to be in, especially when you hear the story of you know, Generation Y wanting to get into the property market and not able to do so unless the bank of mum and dad are kind of backstopping and guaranteeing a loan. Um, and, and, and racking up debt in this space is actually very, very easy to do. Um, as you say, 70% of those people that are behind the payments have sought funding elsewhere in an interest-bearing environment. What makes that particularly unpalatable? You go, okay, what's your fault you got into debt? But if there's no regulation, just like we see within lending within the banking space, the responsible lending criteria, currently in Parliament, by the way, um, for discussion as to whether it needs to be wound back, I hope and pray they don't. It needs to kept, be kept where it is to, uh, to act in consumers' best interests and keep the banks on the straight and narrow, which we know they need from time to time. Um, so, you know, there's, there's none of that in play and uh, it, it is gonna wreak problems. And if you look further down the line, you know, if you wanna get into the property market, you can't get a loan because you've got an afterpay debt that you haven't paid, and it does count towards your serviceability on a loan. You know, that then destroys that goal of owning a house if that's where you wanna be because you swapped it for some sneakers over four easy payments. Now that's a real tragedy. Add to that, and, and, and these are truly nasty statistics, and uh, it takes a lot to rock me when it comes to hearing numbers, and hearing these, are, you know, as we discussed before we came on air, you know, beggars belief. Crazy. The Bank of Mead, uh, recently acquired by the Bank of Queensland, by the way, great acquisition, I think, Was, really yeah. increased the footprint of the biggest banking deal for about 10, 20 years in Australia. Um, the Bank of Mead um, do a consumer health comfort survey, uh, and that survey is really quite terrifying. You know, one in five people surveyed have got no cash savings per se. Now, that's one in five that have no cash savings. And you think, well, what exactly does that mean? Does that mean that you're down to your last 100 grand, 10 grand, five grand, $100, $50? When you actually dive in a little bit deeper on that and look at those numbers, and, and, and again, um, you know, one in 10 people in that survey, one in 10 households have less than $100 in cash savings. It makes me sick. That's 10% yeah. of the population. 
and less than one in five have, I think, what was thousand dollars. Yeah, around one in five have less than a thousand dollars. Yeah, those numbers are staggering, and, and and we've seen big shifts in household savings rates through the the pandemic, where you know, people have started to save a little bit more. We've also seen, you know, with JobKeeper and JobSeeker, people have had more income coming in the door. They're being phased out, and they probably should be. Uh, and that's going to bite especially hard when you look at that, that bottom tail in our society and in our economy of one in five people not having $100 cash savings. Brutal. And yet you can still go and buy stuff because you can spread it over four payments. And I think that social wind and we've talked in several podcasts previously in different shows um, of that socially responsible investing. Um, that is a cloud that hangs over, I think, the buy now, pay later space. If you, if you put a really vigorous, socially responsible um, screen on what you're doing, because you could argue, and I'm not suggesting this is the case, but you could argue that it's almost predatory lending. We are lending to the lowest um, common denominator, the, the smallest end of the tail, on the distribution curve with the least amount of money and you're selling the dream is you can have those Nike sneakers, you've paid off over four payments, it's okay, it's fine. And, and, and that sort of growth in the business, it's great to laud the success of those businesses and they have been truly remarkable, but there is a disproportionate negative impact at that bottom end of the pile where people really are in significant financial distress, either because they are using buy now, pay later services, as we've seen, you know, the delinquency is on the increase, one in five not being able to make payments on time, and then they're furthering their debt problem by having to borrow interest-bearing money to pay it off, but also seeing the actual lack of savings that people have. Now, the flip side of that, I also believe there's a level of accountability. People are responsible for their own situation in life as well. And okay, some people may not have a high level of financial literacy, but you should save. And if you don't have any savings, there's absolutely no way in a million years you should be then borrowing more to buy you know, consumer goods and disposable things that really do no value add in your life other than maybe giving a endorphin release for 30 seconds. Well, I mean, $100 in the bank is not a lot. Then that, that's, I mean, you could spend that on lunch, right? And just going out in one day. And it's funny you say that because Americans are exactly the same. As a proxy, 40% of Americans would not be able to cover an unforeseen $400 expense. Yeah, everything in America is bigger than better. So everything in America. <laughs> so, and, and, and that again, is, is it shows the wealth discrepancy uh, that's out there. Um, yeah, that's not for us to comment on. We're not social commentators, but it's a very real thing. Provided there's a level of regulation that helps afford some level of protection to people that are at that vulnerable level, I think that would be a good thing. And that's why yeah, the notion of um, a code of conduct that's self-regulated, I think it's a very toothless, and very soft uh, thing. Now, the companies in buy now, pay will continue to grow and they'll thrive in that environment. But I think long-term, you run the reputational damage of leaving this financial Armageddon behind. So by being a little more vigorous at the regulatory stage right now, and making sure that the most vulnerable people in our population aren't exploited, or through lack of financial savviness on their part, financial knowledge or literacy, that inadvertently dig themselves into a financial hole and get that there's a protection mechanism in place. So banks and the credit cards with zero fees, a reasonable threat. Regulation will slow things down short term, but I think long term is a very, very good reason to be in play for the long term success of an embryonic sector. And don't forget, regulation always catches up. It's always behind R&D. Um, and the regulation will always catch up with it at some point. And thirdly, is that sort of nasty statistic of the delinquencies in there, and particularly when you look at that against the context from the Bank of Meads report about the level of uh, the, the very uh, lower end of society, the people that cannot and don't have savings yet may well get exposure to that buy now, pay later space and, and incur more financial pain because of it. 
put those three things together as a pain, that's a dark cloud. But if these companies are able to tiptoe around that morally and commercially, I think, as I said, we should be very, very proud of what our Australian champions are doing dominating the global space. Definitely. It's a great story, but then again, there are those risks involved, which we, which we should certainly consider. Now, to conclude the broadcast, AB, as a trader, mm. how do you digest all this information? Because there's a lot on fundamentals, the business, <laughs> what they are. There's the earnings to digest, but then there's also the social mm. responsibility that we have there as traders as well. Yeah. To finish off. Look, I think there's an enormous shift. And these companies are in the right place at the right time. And you know, we, we sort of joked about VHS a little earlier, but this is kind of going through the, the VHS uh, to DVD, to, to, to Blockbuster, to Netflix, to streaming. <laughs> These guys are in the streaming space. So they're right at the vanguard of a technology boom and a shift in social um, habits the way people want to be cashless, or a lot of people do. So they are in the right place. And with good stewardship uh, and, and the right regulatory framework, I think this will continue to be a great growth sector. In terms of the earnings, never like seeing red ink on anyone's earnings. It's never a good thing to see. But if the story has got enough conviction, Tesla being a primary example of that, if there's enough conviction behind the story and the vision of where these companies want to go and what they want to do, which is a true game changer, their short-term pain as far as earnings are concerned. Both companies have got cash reserves in order to sail through this and they are in buying market share mode. So that's part of the reason why I think as if anywhere was cash flow positive anyway, sure. um, but it was just a, a net loss across the, the group, but it was cash flow positive. Um, yeah, and, and that may be a risk from a traditional investor's perspective, but we're not talking about a traditional investment here. This isn't you buy your shares for your three and a half percent fully frank dividend, you're buying a great growth story. And what we might see is that pullback uh, in the likes of Afterpay from 160 to 120, or in the case of Zip from 12 to 10, turned out to be a buying opportunity. And if I look at where I see Zip especially going, that's where I'm leaning at the moment uh, and seeing what it's doing with that quad pay horizontal and vertical, vertical expansion in the US, I think that's going to be the one to watch. And if it duelists on the NASDAQ as well, boom, it's a home run. We're away. Absolutely. And so, you know, very different lenses, not profit and loss lenses, but where is the opportunity? And, and, and the tide has moved that way as long as the damage socially and responsibly is contained in a way that avoids the most vulnerable people being exploited for the growth sake of these businesses. And I think it's going to be a very, very long story to look. And it'll be really interesting in a year or two years' time to review this podcast and see how many of these sort of prophecies have already come through. And look, we examine the same information in markets as everybody else. Maybe we look through different lenses based on experience and skill set and the like. But the reality is what I've just talked of here is what trading and investing in its purest form is all about. Taking a piece or pieces in this case of information and being able to very, very carefully join the dots to turn it into a profitable trading idea. Everybody looks, but only some people see. And everyone's looking at that information, but whether they can see the opportunity is where the skill set truly sits. Well, you heard it here first. Thanks very much, Mr. B. February FinTech fail, buying opportunity in my eyes. So thanks very much for sharing. Absolute pleasure. And thanks for saying the title because I really like <laughs> it. Right. Anytime. There you have it, guys. Make sure you give us a review and a rating and we'll see you in the next week's show.